This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Americans are facing a doctor shortage. This complex problem is driven in part by the increased medical demands of an aging baby boom generation, as well as the impending retirement of doctors who are themselves in the boomer demographic. While the supply of new doctors is constrained by medical school and residency program capacity, our onerous licensing process also serves to limit the number of foreign trained doctors immigrating to ease the supply. Indeed, even the most accomplished medical expert in the world would likely need to repeat his or her residency were they to immigrate to the United States. Given the critical and growing shortage of physicians, are there reforms to our licensing process that could attract qualified doctors from around the world to help serve the needs of an aging U.S. population? My guest today is Pioneer Institute's Senior Healthcare Fellow, Josh Archambault. Mr. Archambault's recent Forbes article entitled, Olympians Trust International Doctors, Can They Help Reduce the U.S. Physician Shortage? shines a light on the barriers facing foreign trained doctors who want to practice in the United States, but who must face the requirement to repeat residency. His piece suggests that common sense reforms to our poorly designed licensing process could offer the US healthcare system much needed expertise and even provide tools for medically underserved communities to attract much needed doctors. When I return, I'll be joined by Pioneer Institute's Josh Archambault. Okay, we're back. I'm Joe Silvaggi. This is Humbonk. I'm now joined by Pioneer Institute Senior Healthcare Fellow, Josh Archambault. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Joe, thanks so much for having me back again. Good. Well, Josh, uh, it's good to have you back. I was intrigued by uh, some of the issues you brought up. You had a, a wonderful uh, article in Forbes just this past week, I believe, maybe a week and a half ago. Uh, and it was entitled, Olympians Trust International Doctors. Can they help reduce the U.S. physician shortage? Um, I'll, I'll paraphrase and say it brought up an interesting idea that uh, with the Olympics, that uh, the ceremonies are, are finishing up this week. Um, our athletes can compete all over the world. Uh, they have access to some of the best doctors all over the world, but doctors can't compete all over the world. They can't just pick up and, and go where they like. Um, and you wove that into an idea that couldn't we do more um, to help bring these doctors here if they like uh, and perhaps address an impending shortage of doctors. So let's unpack your argument of the article uh, piece by piece. Uh, let's talk about, I think it was um, some of the Olympic athletes, the winter Olympic athletes, couldn't have access to the doctors that they had wanted. Say more about where, where those limitations are right now. Yeah, so my co-author Jonathan and I were, like many Americans, watching the Olympics off and on uh, over the last few uh, weeks. And one of the stories that we were noticing in some of the media coverage repeatedly was just a remarkable amount of surgeries that some of these athletes have gone through uh, to compete, you know, especially the athletes that are in their 30s or so, and, you know, seven knee surgeries. And I think it speaks a couple of things. One, one just the remarkable ability of modern uh, medicine to be able to get athletes whose careers would have been completely ruined by one of these injuries in the past and would not have competed again. 
to have, be back at the top of their game and back at multiple Olympics because of these surgeries. And one of the things that we noticed was many of them were seeking out some specialists in Europe or other parts of the world that some of these top medical professionals. And it dawned on us that actually, while Americans can go and see these, the Olympians can afford or sponsor to go and see these providers elsewhere, they actually couldn't provide that same level of service in America. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But at the crux of it is, if you went, if you're an internationally trained physician, and you want to come to the United States to practice, then you have to repeat your residency. You have to go back to what it would have been just after you graduated uh, medical school. And in many cases, we've heard repeatedly, they're just not willing to do that for a variety of reasons. And so as we look ahead and look at the physician shortage, this raised a, a barrier and an issue. And there's a way out of this. There are some states moving forward on it, which we can talk about. But it's just one of those things that I don't think most, most average patients really think about who they can actually see is dictated by whether it, where the person was trained. So you're saying if you are the top doctor in the world um, on a particular surgery uh, and you want to uh, immigrate to the United States, um, along with the attending immigration limitations, perhaps, uh, but let's set those aside for a moment, you would have to go back, despite the fact you may have been in the uh, industry 25 years, you'd have to go back um, redo your residency as if you had just graduated uh, medical school uh, along with your fellow 25-year-olds and, and do uh, what is, you know, I think it's been called residency because you essentially reside at the hospital. It's a pretty intensive, uh, low-pay um, uh, retraining for someone who really is a more senior person. So you're saying all of those doctors would have to start, I won't say at square one, but let's say not uh, not where they left off in their in their native country. That's right. And so if we think about, you know, America aspiring to be a place of entrepreneurs and innovation, you know, I anecdotally have heard of stories of top of their field uh, surgeons or others living in the UK, for example, which they pioneer a certain kind of procedure. Well, they can't come, can't come to Boston, can't come to New York, can't come to LA, can't come to Kansas City, can't come to a rural community to perform that surgery here because they would have to go through that. And so I think you know, there's many layers to this issue that you mentioned, uh, immigration, but I think it comes down to, at the end of the day, is America wanting to be a welcoming land to this innovation, to experts in the medical field? You know, we, we look forward at the demographics in this country, and especially for physicians, about 40% of physicians are due to retire by 2030. And so uh, we're just out of pure necessity, this is an issue that we need to talk about uh, how many people are going to medical school? How many residency slots are? How, how do we fund those residency slots? Do we have enough providers in rural communities? Do we have enough of them in under in underserved urban communities, which is a, a major issue? But yep. getting at just the cutting edge technology and, and medical services that do, do emerge, do we want those entrepreneurs to feel incentivized and have a clear pathway to be able to come to the United States and practice or even just come and teach, practice here for a couple of years to teach some of our uh, medical doctors or surgeons or others to provide that. And right now there is a barrier in the way and states can do it. And what was very interesting about this, <clears throat> as we've dug into this issue and we're not alone, I mean, Jeff, Dr. Jeff Flyer, who was the former dean of Harvard Medical School, has dug into this as well, is that in a lot of conversations, there doesn't actually seem to be a reason why that this requirement is on the books. It primarily is just, well, we've always done it this way. And so that really raises questions about, well, that, that doesn't, if there's not an actual reason 
for why this barrier is in place. These people have already done residencies in their home country. So why would we require them to repeat it? And it's a relatively simple change, policy change. But of course, the devil's in the details of what, what countries are, uh, are we allowing individuals to come? Where do we think medical programs are, quote unquote, equivalent going forward? But beyond those sorts of details, the actual simple concept is let's make sure that they, they're not <clears throat> residing, taking a huge hit uh, financially and uh, having to live at the hospital doing 60, 70, 80 hour weeks when really these are the folks that have 25, 30 years experience. And we want to make sure that they have that clear pathway here. Sure, I think you you point out a bunch of uh, very good points in in your remarks. Um, I will say I, I don't want to sound like a cynic, but uh, one of the reasons I think no one's advocating for foreign doctors' causes is they don't vote, uh, so uh, they're not here to uh, advocate on their own behalf. But you point out too, if there's no reason to change this, in other words, we've always done it this way. Why you know there's no impetus to to change your paper. Your your piece also uh, points to the fact that. Um, there's a projected shortage, you estimate, of a, a, a shortage of physicians, of 120,000 physicians by 2030. Uh, you made some reference to, in your last remark to the demographics. Uh, we all know about the baby boomers retiring at a rate of, I think it's a, the silver tsunami, as they call it, at a rate of 10,000 people every day are retiring. Uh, some of those retirees are, are doctors, so they're going, you know, those baby boomer doctors are also retiring and will also need doctors themselves. Um, you mentioned 40% of American physicians will be will be retiring in that time. So why um, why doesn't this make more sense? Why, in a sense, looking at these inevitable demographics, why wouldn't this be enough to really stimulate a, a, um, a force for change? Well, I, I think we're optimistic. There, there are some states debating this as we speak. Um, Arizona, Missouri, Wisconsin, there's bills filed there moving on this exact issue. And I think it's only going to grow. But Let's peel back the onion a little bit. I think there's a couple confounding issues that are making this worse, not only the demographics, but you know, if you step back and say, do, do we have enough doctors or medical uh, students coming through the pipeline to replace those that are going to retire? The answer is no, uh, we simply don't. And so there is a debate to be had, and we've had this in Massachusetts over the years, of do we have enough medical schools? Do we have enough um, entities training the next generation of physicians and projections that I've seen from multiple organizations, the simple answer is no, we do not have enough. We do not have enough uh, individuals who are going into medicine to be able to replace this. But then the secondary issue becomes, do we actually have enough residency slots? Because that is in all 50 states for physicians, a requirement to be licensed. They have to go through the residency slot. The short answer is no, we don't have enough residency slots. And so while we're not graduating enough, for those that we are graduating, there are still thousands of them every single year that don't get matched in a residency slot. Well, if you don't get a residency slot, then you're not able to get licensed in practice. So we're losing them. We're paying, they are, and we are investing all of this money to train them. And yet we do not have enough residency slots for them to go to. A lot of those individuals, if they don't get matched, maybe the second time around, the second year, they will leave medicine. They won't take any job in the field and they'll go do something else. And what a loss for us as a country, what a loss for patients when access is such, such an issue. Then you layer onto that, that you there is a pathway for internationally trained physicians once they come out of school to come. If they haven't done a residency slot at home, they're going to have to apply for one of these residencies where we do not have enough to begin with, and they're in competition. 
So then we end up at the, the kind of last stop of this discussion, which is what the piece is about, which is for an individual who has already done, let's just say in the UK or in Canada, has already completed their residency. We're now putting them into the pool to compete for not enough swaps. And it really is head scratching when you start to think about the way that the system has been set up. And I think that's the crux of so many issues that we have in healthcare. There was not an original design to end up where we are now. It just evolved into what it is. And so we at times need to stop and pause and think about, okay, we're probably not going to start from scratch in many instances here, but we can adjust and make sure that there are pathways that are common sense, that are meet the needs of patients, meet the needs of physicians. And this is one of them to say that if an individual has actually already done a residency, we're not going to throw them into this quagmire that we have already of not having enough slots. And there's reforms needed in Medicare that has to do with medic with residency slots. There's reforms needed for medical schools. Like those are whole other conversations that need to be had in this country. But at minimum, we can start with the low hanging fruit. I think you're going to see a growing uh, effort and focus on this because just out of pure necessity of we need to find more sources of highly qualified providers to be able to come in to America. So let me unpack what you've just described. You say, okay, look, we need more doctors. We've established that, particularly going forward. So we have uh, kids going into undergrad, uh, bio majors, pre-meds. We've got plenty of those going in. Then they go into medical school. I suppose they're, uh, you know, that funnel gets a little narrower at that point. Then they leave medical school and they need need to enter one of these uh, precious residencies. And I think your paper mentions uh, something like 2,200 medical students don't find a a program. So this seems like the limiting constraint here in the in the process. So uh, some who don't go into uh, don't get their residency, they'll become I don't know what what they become. Perhaps. I don't know, um, but they uh, they don't become doctors. Um, and so ultimately at the end of the pipeline, we have American born doctors. What you're saying is if we could do some meaningful, intelligent reform on um, uh, allowing international doctors to uh, move here, practice here, and in a sense, uh, avoid needing to go back through residency. Not only does it provide a a pull, in other words, they, they don't have to uh, forego income and time and become a resident again. Uh, so we have that pull, but also they're not, they're not crowding out uh, American-born uh, medical students who also are competing for those residencies. In other words, it's it's win-win. The doctors are already in the pipeline. It, 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 they're not competing with these international doctors. Uh, and the, those of us who need doctors here who don't want to wait a long time in a waiting room uh, have more doctors to choose from. It, am I summarizing your, your points there? Yeah, it's absolutely true. And, and just to be very clear, I mean, they could be American-born or they could be international students who come to American medical yeah. schools. Yes, I, I didn't mean to mean, I, no, I'm not sure. trying to be a no. nativist. I just, yeah. mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And so it's just, you know, medical graduates of medical institutions. And, and, and what's interesting is you have seen a number of, in the Caribbean in particular, there are a couple institutions who are actually drawing quite a few Americans down to the Caribbean to be trained who have very good relationships with trying to place in residency slots when they those Americans are ready to come back to the United States. And so you're seeing these individuals. And to, what, what, what's interesting is like there are more people who want to go to med school than are able to go. So there's actually the filtering. There's been lots of questions about whether the narrowing is actually a beneficial thing. Are, are those not getting into medical school actually less qualified? And I've seen research saying, no, these are individuals that if there were slots, they would be just as 
good medical providers if there were just more slots in medical school to begin with. So yeah, there's certainly an issue there. I, I think the other thing that we see emerge in this debate is, well, where are these individuals going to go? Um, are they going to settle in urban areas or they're going to settle in rural areas? And some of the states that are debating this reform do say that we, you can, we're going to, you can skip the residency slot if you go into one of the critical access areas um, and you need to live there. And anecdotally, what's very interesting is on the loan repayment side in rural America in particular, where this is probably the most acute in some communities, um, there's been loan repayment programs trying to get medical students to come out to serve. Well, in essence, a lot of them will come, get their loan forgiven, and then move somewhere else. But for a lot of these internationally trained physicians, they'll come, they'll bring their families, they'll settle in the community, and they'll become deeply part of that community. And so that's why you we're seeing a lot of um, rural hospitals and others excited about this sort of reform to say, hey, we're not just looking for somebody to come and serve for two to three years, five years, whatever. We want somebody to come here and live for 20 or 30 years. And so well, well this is, uh, and I don't want to oversell it, this is not a silver bullet reform to the, the physician shortage issue, but it is certainly a tool in the toolbox it seems to be very common sense that benefits not only the physician and their family, their hospitals, but patients in particular. And I just think we need to make sure that we pause and have policymakers be aware of this, that with a relatively easy change, they can create this pathway for these physicians to come if they would like to. So you're saying these programs now um, uh, work deliberately to encourage or entice doctors away from, let's say, urban areas like a Boston towards more rural areas, let's say, the western part of our own state, right? Uh, here in Massachusetts, uh, it's probably underdoctored, and I would hazard a guess that Boston um, uh, has more doctors per square mile than any place on earth. So, um, so you're saying what rural communities typically do is perhaps have some loan forgiveness program to, to encourage a doctor out. What an international program might do is um, go directly to the international doctor and say, if you move here, um, you know, we, we will be supportive. And what you're saying, that relationship, even more so than the loan repayment, is a stickier relationship. The international doctor who comes over and moves his family here uh, is more likely to stay in that rural community than the counterpart um, from a, a, a U.S. medical school. Once his loan is repaid, he may pack up and go back to Boston. Yeah, that, that, and I haven't seen uh, lots of research done on that. That's more anecdotal from talking to people who are, you know, trying to attract providers. And I think it doesn't just apply to physician. I think it applies to nurse practitioners and nurses and others, um, because you know the shortage of medical high quality medical providers is extremely acute at this moment. Not just because of COVID, but because of um, a lot more mobility. I mean. Some future episode, Joe, we can talk about the nurse shortage issue that is out there and the amount of uh, hospitals and others that are using traveling nurses, individuals who only come in for three months or six months and then move on. I mean, uh, having a culture of care at the highest quality when you have your staff turning over every three to six months uh, of individuals moving, not to say that these are not good providers, but just difficult when you're having new personalities come in, having to, to learn new systems. So if you're able to get providers, whether it's a physician, all the way down to a nurse who's there and is living in the community and not going to move on in three to six months, that is by far the preference going forward. And we're having an unprecedented amount of disruption happen in our, a lot of medical settings, both urban and rural. 
And so we have to look at some of these alternative ways to make sure that individuals that want to come and if even 50% of them settle down in their community and become really valuable uh, parts of that community, that's a huge win. And, you know, I think the last thing I would just say here, Joe, about the numbers of what we're talking about is this has been a little bit of a chicken and an egg debate of trying to understand will a lot more physicians come if they know that they don't have to go through the residency slots. Uh, there is a visa program that allows individuals to come currently right now, and not all of those visa slots are taken every year. And the speculation for years has been because of this barrier. And so I think, interestingly, if a few states pass this, we're going to find out in the next five years or so whether that is, in fact, the primary barrier for these trained physicians to come or whether it's other issues. Um, they don't know about the opportunity. They're not being recruited. Maybe it's um, the systems are just different between some of these countries. But when you're talking about Israel, Australia, the UK, Canada, Ireland, I mean, th these systems are close enough in many people. We have seen individuals come into the country out of these uh, countries and do a fellowship, be here for 10 years, and maybe go back home due to family reasons. It, it is not that big of a stretch to see that you would see more flow back and forth of uh, physicians coming and actually becoming and settling down. Well, as I like to say often uh, when we're talking about topics here on Hubwonk, I say our audience are not just, a, uh, they're not into just merely our ideas that we're a think tank, but we're also a do tank. Um, you, you, as you say, there's many layers to this question, uh, but uh, 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 medical staff stability, um, particularly in the wake of the disruption of COVID, is something that benefits all of us. Of course, the doctors and the nurses want to be stable. The uh, patients themselves want to see a, the same uh, familiar face when they are when they are sick. Um, what can listeners, uh, and I, I really want to address more the state level, uh, of course, immigration can be more of a national issue, but let's address what we could do as a state um, if uh, policymakers are listening to the show and this uh, strikes a chord with them. What, what could we do? Yeah, I think there's probably two pathways here. You know, first is the legislature, the general court certainly could pass a law, a model of one of the other bills that have been filed around the country that creates an explicit pathway. And those bills typically have done a few things. The one, the first one is they've actually named a number of countries and to say, we're going to have some sort of reciprocity here that if you have attended a medical uh, school and there is entities, international entities who certify these schools. And so if you attend one of these schools in one of these countries that are recognized, then if you would like to come and practice in the United States, you still need to meet every other requirement that the board of licensure has, but you do not need to repeat your the residency as we've been speaking about. That at least brings clarity. That allows medical institutions, hospitals to know that they can go out and recruit at these international programs and say, or other facilities and say, you know, we really would like to have you come and practice at our hospital because of the high quality work that you are doing and let people know here's the process to do that. You no longer have this multi-year barrier uh, in place. So it's that simple. I do think that in many cases, including Massachusetts, the boards themselves could be a lot more explicit. I think this is an education gap more than anything. It's just to say, this is something that you can do. Uh, to set up a process in which individuals uh, to say, here are the criteria that we are looking for. You need to be in good standing back home. You need to have gone to one of these schools. You need to have not had major liability issues in the last few years uh, going forward. We need to see your records. We need to see how you did in school, that you completed school, all of those kind of basic things that we would want to double check before somebody comes. 
But it's often the gray area here that leads to, I think, hesitation for people going forward. So that states can very easily pass a law, or I think the boards could really clearly articulate out to say, this is the pathway that we're going to have going forward, and we're going to welcome, open the door to these individuals that want to come practice. But a wonderfully interesting experiment will be if we can get this all going. I think to myself, uh, as, a, as a city guy, uh, myself, um, we see a lot of immigrants all the time. Uh, usually uh, the urban center is where uh, immigrants start. Certainly my grandparents, that's how they went. I can imagine seeding our rural communities with very uh, well-educated people from other places. It may may change our uh, uh, our culture, right? We the people, the pillars of our community are, are medical professionals coming from elsewhere. Uh, may may change our sort of uh, notion of what people from other places look like, are like. Uh, it may, I think, uh, have a very beneficial effect on just our our um, our view of the world. If if the person curing your kid or your mom is from somewhere else, uh, it may have us take a different look on the on the rest of the world. I, I'm I'm just offering that as an aside, as a as a, a thoughtful uh, a, um, idea. Um, yeah, this has been very informative. Um, is there anybody taking the lead up on um, our uh, state house in our state house on Beacon Hill? Is someone uh, a crusader for for the cause of international uh, medical uh, doctors? I'm asking this not knowing if you do have an answer. I'll, I'll just throw that out there. It, to date, there is not. Um, I think that this is an open opportunity for the conversation to start in Massachusetts. Oh, good. All right, we'll leave it there then. Thank you very much, Josh. That was a great, uh, great article in in Forbes. Congratulations on getting it in there, and thanks for helping uh, make this, you know, this uh, somewhat arcane piece of information uh, more familiar to our listeners. I, I think this could it's not going to solve the problem, but it, it, we we are moving towards finding a solution. So thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. This has been another episode of Hubwonk a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to help make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about future episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hub One.